You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Marriage problems and fix your kids and rescue you from all of your financial difficulties and make you happy, healthy, and wealthy, then you were lied to. Because God makes no such promises, does He? Yet, that is precisely the message that is being peddled in our day by people who, I'm sure with sincere motives, wish to draw people into the kingdom. And so we have this huge bait-and-switch operation going on in modern-day evangelism where we tell people, if you come to Jesus, you'll fix your marriage, fix your children, fix all of your financial difficulties, and make your job a whole lot better. And then we get them into the kingdom, quote-unquote, into the church, and all of a sudden they find out that Christianity has not made their life better. In some ways, Christianity, being a Christian, has made their life a whole lot worse. Is that possible? Does God promise to fix your marriage? Folks, sometimes becoming a Christian makes your marriage a whole lot tougher. Sometimes being a Christian parent makes dealing with your kids a whole lot more difficult. Because being a Christian throws into all of these relationships an allegiance and an element that is absolutely foreign to the world. And that allegiance and that element is a radical, selfless, passionate obedience to Christ. So when you become a believer, all of a sudden you have an allegiance that trumps all other allegiances and a relationship that trumps all other relationships. And you try and fit that into your marriage and your parenting and your job and your finances, and all of a sudden it introduces an element that just can sometimes mess things up and sometimes it can make things a lot more difficult, probably more often than not. It makes those elements more difficult. Now, there are elements to being a Christian that are are really good and makes life a lot easier. Friends, I would probably get an ulcer and pull my hair out looking at what's going on in the world if I were not a believer. It is only my rest and confidence in the plan and the sovereignty of God that everything's unfolding as ordained and on God's purpose that gives me any ability to have any kind of peace at all. If I were not a believer, I would go nuts. I would go nuts just because I would be in such an anxious state all the time. But in all of those other areas, having Christ in there can actually introduce something into the relationship that may even destroy the relationship. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You see what he introduces into it? Not just have me and it will make everything go so much better, so much smoother. He says you must love me and be committed to me above all else. And anybody who does not is not worthy of me. Being a Christian introduces into that a radical selfless obedience, sacrifice. You see, the call of the cross is not a call to acquisition. It is a call to sacrifice. It is a call to submission, and it is a call to obedience. It is a call to radical, selfless love of another individual. 
And that other individual trumps all other individuals. And so when you introduce him into the relationship, sometimes it makes the marriage really, really tough. Sometimes it makes parenting really, really tough. But it is that radical, selfless obedience and love that was modeled by the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, after he was converted in Acts chapter 9. Now let me ask you, did it make his life easier or harder? Harder. Not easier. But was it worth it? Was it worth it? All of the difficulties? All of the beatings? All of the hatred? All of the plots against his life? Was it worth it? Let Paul answer the question. Second Timothy chapter 4, he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, and I've kept the faith. And there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. And he said, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Was it worth it? Sure it was worth it. The last couple of weeks we've been looking at the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, once a persecutor, now a preacher, converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And listen, you cannot understand the spread of Christianity apart from Saul of Tarsus. You cannot understand anything that he writes in the New Testament apart from understanding Acts chapter 9 and the impact that it had on his life when he was converted. So we're in Acts chapter 9, and I hope your Bibles are open to that chapter. We have looked so far at Saul's conversion. That was in the first 19 verses. Coming up to Damascus, extradition order in hand, breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he sees the light from heaven, and his life has changed as Christ saves him and commissions him to be an apostle. And then we have looked at his consecration, which is that he gave himself to the Lord and to others. First to others in fellowshipping with them. He was with the disciples at Damascus. And then to the Lord in service because he immediately went into the synagogues and began to proclaim Christ. And now Luke is going to show to us the cost. Not only his conversion and his consecration, but also what it costs the apostle to be the apostle. You see, Ananias had told or the Lord had said to Ananias, when the Lord appeared to Ananias and said, go to the street that is called straight to the house of Judas. And there's a man there named Saul from Tarsus. He's praying and he's had seen a vision. You're going to come in, lay your hands on him, and he's going to receive sight. And Ananias said, Lord, I've heard about him, how much trouble he caused your saints back in Jerusalem. And the Lord said, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. That's what he did. He went into the synagogues and started to proclaim and preach Christ. And then the Lord said, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And that's what Luke's going to show us now. Exactly how much Saul of Tarsus had to suffer for his name's sake. Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick it up at verse 23. And we're going to read just together the entire passage, 23 through 31. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. 
So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. We're going to see that after Saul's conversion, he was unwanted by two groups of people, first by the Jews and second by the Christians. Now we've reached a point in the book of Acts where we begin to do the work of a good detective. You see, we have all of Paul's writings, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Corinthians, Thessalonians, Timothy, all of Paul's writings, and we have Luke's record. So we've come now to the point in the book of Acts where we're going to see Luke talk about something that we say, oh yeah, Paul talks about the same thing over here. And Paul will address it from a little bit of a different perspective than Luke addresses it. And so you got to take the two accounts and begin to harmonize them and see how they come together. That's where we're at now in even the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Do you know that there's three years between Acts 9.22 and verse 23? Three years. Now you say, I read that and I don't see three years in there. Look at verse 22. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, when many days had elapsed. Now I see Luke mentioned many days, but where do you get three years? Galatians chapter 1. Paul gives us the whole chronology there. He says in Galatians 1, when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb, saw fit to reveal his son in me and commissioned me to preach among the Gentiles, Paul said, I did not go up immediately to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles, but he said, I went away to Arabia and then came back to Damascus, and then after three years I went to Jerusalem. So between verse 22 and verse 23, we have the apostle Paul leaving Damascus, going to Arabia for a period of time, then coming back to Damascus, And between verse 22 and him being run out of Damascus and going to Jerusalem, Paul says there was a three-year period of time. And Luke indicates that in the words, they're after many days. So we might reconstruct it like this. He's coming to approach Damascus with an extradition order in hand. He sees the light. He's converted. He comes into Damascus blind. For several days there, he is with the disciples in Damascus, preaching in the synagogues. And then for whatever reason, Saul leaves Damascus and goes into Arabia. And he's there for a period of time. He comes out of Arabia, comes back to Damascus. And after a period of time, likely about three years, there is this plot that the Jews fabricate in order to take his life. And he's chased from Damascus and then he goes to Jerusalem. Now, it says, after many days, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. What's ironic about that is that these Jews are the same ones who just three years earlier loved this man. Isn't that ironic? They had loved this man. He was coming from Jerusalem to Damascus to do their work. They had one thing in common with Saul of Tarsus. They both hated Christ and Christians. But now that has changed. The very men who had hailed him now hate him. And he had come from Jerusalem to Damascus. They were going to be involved in this. They were glad to see somebody coming to round up these believers and get rid of them. And now that Saul is a believer... They figure it out, and they figure it out early. The only way to shut this man up is to take his life. So they plotted together to do away with him. And they hated him. Why is it that they hated him? Because he was Saul of Tarsus? No. They hated him because he was the Apostle Paul. When he was Saul the persecutor from Tarsus, he was their best friend. They were fine with that. But when he became Paul the Apostle, the preacher... That they couldn't tolerate. And so as long as Saul was willing to do their work and do their bidding and do their thing, he was welcome. But once he started preaching Christ instead of persecuting Christ, all of a sudden the relationship just went sour, didn't it? 
And so they take a plot, and they, 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 they fabricate this plot to do away with him and to take his life. Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hated me. And if the world had loved me, it would love you, but they won't. And then he said, the world hates you because I chose you out of the world. And this is the reason that the world hates you. They hated Paul, not because he was Paul, but because he was a believer. Because he loved Christ now. Because he had an allegiance that trumped all other allegiances and a relationship that trumped all other relationships, that they could not tolerate. And as long as Saul was willing to persecute the Christians, the Jews were fine with that. But once he changed sides, what did they want? They hated him. And so they put together this plot to kill him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us a little bit more about the plot that was there to take his life. He says in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and I so escaped his hands. Look how Luke says it. The Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now Luke tells us that it was the Jews who had this plot together. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that the ethnarch, that is the ruler over the province or the city of the Damascenes, was in on the plot. And he had positioned guards and people at all the gates of the city. And they were guarding everything that went out of the city. And they knew Saul was somewhere in Damascus and they wanted to have him killed. In his preaching and in his proclamation of Christ, he had worn out his welcome with all of the Arabs. He had worn out his welcome with all of the Jews. And the head of the city was involved in a plot to put him to death. Now see, the Jews, they can't just hate a guy and then go out and have him put to death and kill him in Damascus. That's murder. But it's okay if you get a government official to do the bidding for you. That's what they did. Somehow they were able to convince the ethnarch of the city of Damascus to be involved in this, and so they guarded all of the gates. Now somehow Paul became privy to the plot. It's difficult to keep something like that under wraps when you've got guards stationed at all of the gates of the city going through everything that leaves the city in order to find somebody and that you've likely got people going in and out and through the city looking for Saul, trying to hunt him down. But God in His providence understood, or God in His providence had a plan that included Saul later on and so He thwarted the whole thing. Somehow there was a believer or at least a sympathizer who had a house on the wall And those were the only openings other than the city were windows on the wall where wealthy and affluent people lived up on the walls around the city. And they had windows that looked outside the the city. There was a Christian or at least a sympathizer who had a home there. And by cover of night, they took some sort of a basket uh, carriage type thing and they put it out the window and they put Saul in it and they lowered him down under cover of night outside the city. And so he escaped. Now you see... God had a plan for Saul that included taking the gospel to all of the Gentile world and eventually to preach Christ to Nero, the Caesar. And no silly little ethnarch and all of his soldiers positioned at the gates of the city was going to stop that from happening. And so God just thwarted their plan, and Saul escaped. He left the city of Damascus, and we find out that not only was he unwelcomed by the Jews, but second, he was also not welcomed by the Christians. Paul decides that it is time to visit Jerusalem. Now, it's been how long since Paul's been in Jerusalem? Three years, right? We get a three-year gap between verse 22 and 23. Saul hasn't been in Jerusalem for three years. The last time Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem, saw Saul, Saul was leaving the city with papers with his name on it, giving him permission to persecute Christians. He was on a mission under the auspices of and the authority of the high priest. 
And then Caiaphas hasn't seen Saul since. Saul has been away from the entire city for a three-year period of time. Now, I want you to step into Acts chapter 9 for a second and feel the emotion that the Apostle Paul would be experiencing as he approached Jerusalem. Jerusalem is his adopted hometown. He has spent more time in Jerusalem as an adult than he did in Tarsus. He was born in Tarsus, raised in Tarsus. That's where his family was. We find out later on that Saul has, uh, Paul has a sister who lives in Jerusalem because he has a nephew who's a, a, a child there in Acts chapter 23. So we find out that Paul has a sister who's in Jerusalem and lives in that city. Jerusalem is his adopted hometown. He's more at home there than he is probably anywhere else in the Roman Empire. He's worshipped in that temple. He has all of the high priests and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the priesthood and all of those people know Saul. He has a reputation in that city. And all of the uppity-ups, they know Saul of Tarsus. He was at one time a man of influence and affluence and, and power and prestige in that city. No longer. Now what is he? Oh, he's a hunted man running from his life. And he hasn't been there in three years. And not only that, but he's got a whole group of citizens there that he is deeply offended. Because just three years prior, he had broken up churches, broken up homes, put Stephen to death, and chased people completely out of the city. And now he's approaching Damascus. Can you imagine the emotion? What am I going to say to Caiaphas when I see him? How are they going to respond? I'm on the other side now. Not only that, but large population in Jerusalem has every right to hate me. Are they going to forgive me? Are they going to show me love? Are they going to extend grace to me? These things would be running through his mind as he's coming up to the city of Jerusalem. And Luke says in verse 26, we came to Jerusalem. He was trying to associate with the disciples, not trying to associate with Caiaphas and the high priest and all of his old buddies from the old life. He was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Where Paul was, Christians weren't. And if he would approach one in the temple, they'd turn and walk away. They would not associate with him. They wouldn't go near to him. He wasn't welcome with them. Why? Because they hated him? No, because they did not believe that he was a disciple. And you say, it's been three years. Is not three years without persecution from Saul of Tarsus long enough to gain people's confidence? It's been three years and he hasn't been back in Jerusalem to persecute them. Wouldn't they just extend him a little grace? And before you jump all over these disciples, friends, put yourself in their shoes. It would be easy to understand how it is that they would be a little skeptical, wouldn't it? I mean, after all, stories and accounts have a way of getting distorted as they're passed on. He hasn't been there for three years. These people have only heard accounts of what's gone on. Hey, we hear Saul's off in Damascus preaching. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, we hear that he got saved. Likely, these people back in Jerusalem had heard conflicting stories, conflicting rumors. You know how things get distorted. Probably people just said it's all part of a ploy to get inside the church. And so there was probably distortion running about, about his motives and what he'd actually been doing for the last three years. And people under persecution become naturally defensive. And they sort of put up the barriers, and they're not going to trust people easily, especially someone as hostile and aggressive as Saul of Tarsus was. They didn't readily put down their defenses and welcome him in. They didn't believe he was a disciple. And folks, listen, the proverb holds true, and you and I say it all the time, if something is too good to be true, what? It probably is. Hey, I heard Saul of Tarsus became a believer. Oh yeah, right, what's the punchline? No punchline, I really do think he is a believer. I heard he got saved. 
Oh, come on. What makes you... Why in the world would you say that? Well, I heard such a thing. From who? Well, from my... i got an uncle who has a friend who has a brother whose son went to the city of Damascus and heard Saul preaching Christ in the synagogues. Well, this guy that was preaching heard Saul preaching in the synagogues, is he a believer? Well, I don't know. Well, then how do you know that he was actually preaching Christ? I mean, you can't trust... Look, if you're gullible enough to believe that Saul of Tarsus is now a believer, I have a bridge on the Jordan River I would sell you, and some marshland down in the desert next to Gaza. Do you know they took the word gullible out of the dictionary? Really? I mean, you'd have to be gullible to read that. No, no, I think it was the genuine article. I, I think he did got saved. I mean, I heard he was traveling to Damascus and a light from heaven shone around him and he heard the voice of Christ and Christ appeared to him and commissioned him to be an, an apostle. Just like Peter and John, only to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles could be saved. And he was blinded, then he went into Damascus and he was healed by a guy named Ananias and now he's preaching Christ. Does that sound too good to be true? It was true. But you can understand why they'd be a little skeptical, can't you? For all they knew, Saul of Tarsus was the quintessential wolf in sheep's clothing. Fabricating this conversion story so that he could get into the church and do from inside what he was unable to do from the outside, that is, destroy them. And so, reasonably, logically, rationally, emotionally, I can understand where those disciples were coming from. And they didn't believe he was a believer. Saul desperately needed a friend. In the city of Damascus, it was Ananias who led the way and came to Saul and laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, baptized him. They ate together. He was strengthened. And because of Ananias' leadership and, and really his reaching out to Saul of Tarsus, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus, fellowshipping and worshiping and ministering with them. Saul needed such a man in Jerusalem because nobody from the church would associate with him for fear that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing wanting to do them harm. So enter a man named Barnabas. It's not the first time Barnabas is mentioned. He's introduced back in chapter 5. Barnabas was not his real name. Do you remember what his real name was? Joseph. He was called Barnabas by the apostles. Barnabas means son of encouragement. In Acts chapter 5, it was it was uh, Barnabas. I think it's actually end of Acts chapter 4, beginning of Acts chapter 5. It was Barnabas, who had sold a tract of land and brought it to the apostles and sold it. And he's kind of contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira, who did the same thing outwardly, but inwardly they were being duplicious and deceptive toward the Lord. And that was how, Ananias, that was how Barnabas showed his propensity toward encouragement. That's why the disciples called him son of encouragement, Barnabas, because he was an encouraging type of guy. He was the person who sold his land and gave it to the poor as an encouragement to them. And he was just this gracious, outgoing, gregarious type of person who was always looking out for the down and out and the downtrodden and somebody who was discouraged so that he could encourage them. And he saw such a man in Saul because Saul was in Jerusalem and he was standing between two religious bodies. Judaism that did not want him. They hated him because he was a traitor. They viewed him as the same type of person as Stephen who would gladly sell out the faith of their fathers to believe in this heretic called Christ who claimed to be a Messiah. And so Paul was a traitor. They didn't view him as a scholar. They didn't view him as anybody of any significance or reputation. They hated him. He was a threat. He was a heretic and a traitor. And they didn't want him. Then there were the Christians who saw him as a threat because they didn't know if his conversion was real or not. And so Barnabas saw Saul isolated between these two groups, not a friend in Jerusalem. Nobody wanting to associate with him. 
And so Barnabas does what came naturally to Barnabas because he had the gift of encouragement. He takes hold of Saul and he marches him in to the apostles. Now, I wish I were a fly on that wall that day that Peter met Saul. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Now, Paul tells us in Galatians 1, it was two apostles, Peter and James. Those were the two that were there. And I would love to have seen that. I would love to have seen Barnabas and Saul explain to Peter and to James and to whoever else was in that room the Damascus Road experience. And I would love to have seen the look on Peter's face when Paul said, I have been appointed by Christ as an apostle. An apostle? Yeah, right. We've got 12. That's plenty. No, no, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. (laughs) The Gentiles? You're going to see later on just how shocked Peter is when a Gentile actually gets saved. And now he's meeting somebody who claims to be commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles. Because of Barnabas' standing with the apostles, and because they respect him so much, it's Barnabas who's able to give Saul a hearing with the apostles. And Luke says he explained to them how he saw the Lord on the Damascus Road and how the Lord spoke to him, and how Saul then turned around and spoke out boldly in the name of the Lord at Damascus. Now, I have to wonder something. Was Barnabas privy to that because he was in Damascus at the time? Did Barnabas hear Saul preach in the synagogues? Had Barnabas met Saul before in Damascus while Saul was there during that period of time, those three years? Or did Barnabas just take a chance on Saul and accept his testimony at face value? We're not told. But either way, Barnabas takes a chance with Saul, and at great risk to himself, and at great risk to the disciples and to the apostles, He brings Saul in, introduces him to Peter and to James, and establishes that relationship between the apostle of the Gentiles and the apostles to the Jews. And it happened because of Barnabas. Now listen, friends, I can understand the reluctance of the disciples to not want to 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 associate with Paul, the reluctance in that. I can understand that. But I also know that it's the example of Barnabas that I'm called to model. How do you act and respond to people who are the most unwelcome amongst us? and the most unlovable, and the most unloving. Listen, if there was an unwelcome, unlovable person in Jerusalem that day, it was Saul Tarsus. In everybody's view, he was unlovable, and he was unwelcome, and it was Barnabas. It was Barnabas who went to him in encouragement, believed him, took a chance with him, and took him to the apostles. It was Barnabas who saw in Saul the genuine article, because he believed in him. And I cannot begin to imagine what that expression of love and encouragement meant to Saul at that point. I cannot even begin to imagine what that meant to him. One person in all of Jerusalem was willing to take a chance with him. And that started a friendship that lasts for quite a long time. Uh, It's Barnabas who goes to see Saul in Acts chapter 11, brings him back to Antioch to minister there. That started a friendship that went on for years and years after that. And it's because Barnabas took a chance with Saul. And because of that, Saul was welcomed with the disciples, welcomed with the apostles, and Luke says he began to move about freely in Jerusalem. I'm taking that to mean that he began to enter and go in and out and move amongst the believers, and the disciples began to get comfortable with Saul. He was moving freely with them. But Saul quickly wore out his welcome. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us, that this visit in Jerusalem in which he met the apostles lasted only 15 days. That's how long the visit lasted. 15 days. He is arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, Luke says in Acts chapter 9, 
And they begin to plot to put him to death. Now, why would they do such a thing? Why would the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem begin to plot to put Paul to death? These are the same Jews who put Stephen to death, by the way. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. That means a Jew that spoke Greek more than the Arabic or Hebrew. He was familiar with Greek. They read their Bible in Greek. They worshipped in Greek. Those were the Hellenistic Jews. It was the synagogue filled with freedmen from Cilicia that Stephen was likely a part of. And he was debating with the Hellenistic Jews in Acts chapter 6. And it says that they could not cope with his wisdom or the spirit with which he argued. And so they did what? They brought up false witnesses and they had him stoned. Those were the Hellenistic Jews. Now Saul comes into Jerusalem and he picks up where Stephen left off. He goes to the Hellenistic Jews and he starts to argue and debate with them and reason with them and evangelize them. And what do they do? They understand it's easier to kill him than it is to win an argument against him. I mean, he confounded the Jews in Damascus. And when he came to Jerusalem, you think they want an argument against Paul? Forget it. They couldn't win an argument against Stephen, let alone Paul. So they hatched this plot to put him to death. Now, a few silly Jews in Jerusalem is not going to thwart the plan of God for the life of the Apostle Paul. So he thwarts it again. This whole plot becomes known to the disciples who are in the city of Jerusalem. Paul says in Acts chapter 22, I think it's verse 7 or 17, he says that he was praying in the temple and he fell into a trance and he saw the Lord. And the Lord said to him, make haste, get out of Jerusalem because they will not accept your testimony about me. That's Paul's own words about what happened here. So Paul knows that there's a plot to take his life. He has this vision in which Christ says, get out of Jerusalem. And so the disciples help him out and they take him down to the port city of Caesarea. And from there he sails up to Tarsus and he goes back home. That is the last we see or hear from Saul of Tarsus until Acts chapter 11, verse 25, when Barnabas goes to Tarsus and gets him and brings him to Antioch for ministry in Antioch. So we don't know anything about well, I shouldn't say we don't know anything. We do. We are given this little glimpse as to what Paul might have been doing while he was in Tarsus. In Galatians 1, Paul says that after he left Jerusalem, he went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Tarsus is the principal city of Cilicia. So that's where he went, to Tarsus. Later on in Acts chapter 15, we're told that there are Gentile churches in Syria and Cilicia. Years later, who do you think planted those Gentile churches? Who do you think took the gospel to the Gentiles in Syria and Cilicia? You think Saul just went up to Tarsus and started tent making and waited for some call from Barnabas? Saul went up there and he did what he was commissioned by the Lord to do. He took the gospel to the Gentiles. And by Acts chapter 15, there are Gentile churches planted in those regions. And this is before, those churches were planted before Paul ever went on a missionary journey. But there were churches there. And I think Saul planted them. Now in Acts chapter 9 verse 1, Look at the contrast. Paul the Apostle, or Saul of Tarsus, leaves Jerusalem breathing threats of murder. In 9 verse 30, he leaves Jerusalem a second time, but this time it's under threat of his own murder. In verse 1, he leaves Jerusalem after fugitive Christians. In verse 30, he leaves Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian. In verse 1, he leaves Jerusalem to cause a bunch of suffering. In verse 30, he leaves Jerusalem because he is suffering. What a change of events, huh? What a turning of the tables it has been. And that's what Luke intends for us to see. We see him leaving Jerusalem in verse 1 after Christians to cause them suffering. In verse 30, he leaves Jerusalem, but this time it's not after Christians, it's as a Christian. And his life has been changed, and he's literally lost everything. Now, as we leave the record of Saul of Tarsus, I want to just give you sort of three lessons that we can sort of pull from everything we've gotten in the last three weeks. 
First of all, the Lord can grow the church through persecution or through peace. Look at verse 31. From that time forward, the church in all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. The persecution has stopped. Now there's a period of peace. Before Saul of Tarsus, there was a period of peace. It was not without its conflict, a conflict with the Sanhedrin, but the church continued to increase and abound. And then when it got persecuted, what happened? The church continued to increase and abound. And now that the lion of Saul of Tarsus has been turned into the lamb of the Apostle Paul, the persecution has died out. It's done. It's over. There's nobody to carry the torch for the Sanhedrin. There's nobody for the Jews' sake to kill Christians. And Saul once did that. But now he's been changed. And so the persecution is over. And what happens? Does the church stagnate? It continues to increase and continue on in the fear of the Lord. The Lord is able to build the church through peace or through persecution. And you and I should not worry one iota which one it is that comes our way. Whether we experience peace in this nation or persecution in this nation. It does not matter. The church will flourish under both. And it will flourish better under persecution. I will tell you that. It's better under persecution. We shouldn't worry about it. Why? Because God grows the church. And He's really not concerned whether or not you suffer or I suffer. I hate to break that to you. He's not concerned about the suffering we may go through. He is concerned about His bride, the church, and the health of the church. And so God will grow the church either way. Peace or persecution. It continues on. And notice also that, friends, suffering is only for a time. It's not indefinite. All suffering lasts only for a time. It's all temporary, except for eternal suffering in hell. But, I mean, suffering here on earth is all of it only lasts for a period of time. And the Lord accomplishes His good, and He accomplishes His glory, and His purpose, and when He is done with it, it stops. And the Lord can do anything to stop it, including saving Saul of Tarsus. That's the second thing we learn. There's no such thing as a hopeless case. You have people in your life that you've written off, stopped praying for, stopped trying to share Christ with, because in your mind you're saying to yourself, they're hopeless. Their sin and their situation is so desperate, they'll never come to Christ. They'll never trust Christ. That person can't be saved. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, For this reason I found mercy, Paul said, in order that in me as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who will later believe in Him for eternal life. He's an example. If Saul of Tarsus can be saved, anybody can be saved. If there's grace for Saul, then there's grace for me, and there's grace for you. And that should be an encouragement to us. That no matter how deep somebody's sin is, no matter how desperate their situation is, no matter who they are, they are not beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no such thing as a hopeless case. Third thing I want you to notice from the conversion and the subsequent service of Saul, Christ is of far more value than anything you and I could have or anything that we might otherwise gain. Christ is of far more value than anything we might have or anything we might otherwise gain. Paul said in Philippians, I have suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ. Now in the context of Philippians, he's talking about all the things that might contribute to his man-made righteousness. 
His standing as a Jew. His standing as a Pharisee. His approach to the law. His zeal. His circumcision. His tribal birth. All of the things that he and other people thought gained him entrance into the kingdom and the righteousness of God. Paul says, I've counted all of that as loss. None of those things contribute anything in order that I may have the righteousness of Christ. But when Saul says, I have suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ, he means more than just the things that contributed to his man-made righteousness. You see, Saul was a person of influence, a person of respect. He was looked up to by people in Jerusalem. He was trained by Gamaliel. He was known by the high priests. He was influential. He was affluent. He had all of that reputation and all of the trappings of success. And now he has lost all of that. Because as an apostle, everybody who once loved him hated him. And Paul could say, I have suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ. Affluence, influence, power, reputation, powerful friends, friends in high places. All of it dissolved when he hit the dirt on the Damascus Road. He had none of that. And that's why he could say, I've suffered the loss of everything in order that I may have Christ. Settle down with a wife, raise a few kids, tent make, retire early, go RVing around Judea. Not for Saul. Not for Paul the Apostle. I have suffered the loss of all things for Christ. And Paul would say, give me Christ and the rest you can keep. Give me Christ and the rest you can keep. I've suffered the loss of it all. Is it worth it? Yeah, he says, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. That's his own testimony. Friends, I ask you, What value do you place on knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? Father, we do thank you for your word and for the lessons from the life of Saul of Tarsus. I pray, God, that you would grace us with your spirit and with your power and with your focus that we might be the type of people who could say this one thing I do and that we would be willing to see the value of knowing Christ and to count everything else as but rubbish compared to that. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, because he is so valuable. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.